All right, we'll be in Galatians chapter 2, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 15. By the way, you may want to consider bringing a printed copy of the Bible, at least for this series in Galatians, because there are a lot of opportunities to misunderstand this letter, and you may want to jot down a note or a cross-reference or two in the margin of your Bible. Always a good idea, uh, but certainly in the next several weeks, it's something that you may benefit from. So, okay, with all that being said, Galatians chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we, uh, we want to pause and remember just how unspeakably holy you are. We have absolutely no right to presume that you would hear our prayers, not on the basis of our own righteousness. And yet we come confidently before you knowing that you do hear. And so, Father, we come to you as sinners, but knowing that we have been justified by the grace of Christ through his blood and through the cross and through the resurrection. And so we want to thank you for this word that I'm just so excited to be able to preach here in just a moment. Father, we want to lift up Brother Guy this morning as he travels back from his lengthy mission trip. I pray that you would keep him safe. We ask that you would uh, keep him from uh, any sickness or exhaustion as uh, is, uh, these trips are, are draining. Uh, Father, we pray as well for the W family as they continue to minister in, in churches kind of all across our region. I pray that you would sustain them and continue to prepare them for the ministry that they have in the future. Uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for the ministry of Builders for Christ. And as Gary and Ida and John and Mary leave this coming weekend to 
uh, go uh, build church buildings in Shreveport. I pray that you would sustain them. I pray that you would protect them from the heat and from the various obstacles and hazards and dangers. And I pray that you would raise up many more who have these types of skills and, and, and abilities to go and use their gifts in this way. Father, most of all, I pray that if there's any here today who has not been born again, who is dead in their trespasses and sins, I pray that through the preaching of your word, you would remove the scales from their eyes and bring them into your kingdom and justify them in your presence. Lord, for those of us who walk knowing that we are believers in Christ, I pray that you would renew our confidence in him and that you would challenge us not to build again the prison from which we have been set free. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we bought our house a few years ago, one of the things that attracted us to this particular property was a tangled grove of overgrown crepe myrtle trees in the backyard. We love those trees. Uh, the first year, we spent a lot of time pruning the branches and, and cutting away those little suckers at the base of each of those trees. And each year, they've gotten a little bit fuller and a little bit healthier. And, well, that was true until last summer. A year ago, I started to notice a black, sooty coating on a few of the upper branches. Upon closer inspection, I also observed tiny white dots underneath the bark in a few spots, almost like little furry white freckles all over the bark of these trees. And when I tried to scrape them off, they left this pinkish goo behind. How many of you know you've, you've seen these on your trees? Am I the only one? They're coming for your trees, okay? Be careful. I assumed that it was some sort of fungus or blight that had started to infect our beloved myrtle trees, but when I did a little bit of research, I learned that the true culprit was not a fungus, but actually a, a tiny insect, crepe myrtle bark scale. And I know it's Father's Day, and for some of you dads who like to have a well-cultivated yard, you don't really want to hear about this sort of thing, but I am going to give you some tips about how to deal with crepe myrtle bark scale. These insects attach themselves to the thin bark of the crepe myrtle tree like tiny vampires sucking the lifeblood of the tree slowly, the sap. They excrete a substance that attracts mold spores, and that creates that sooty uh, black coating on the leaves and the branches. And it usually takes a couple of years, but eventually they choke the tree to death. Now, here's how you get rid of crepe myrtle bark scale. You could scrape them all off. I mean, you could spend time going over every little branch, and you can scrape them away, and that's going to help. That might prolong the inevitable. But if you really want to save that tree, if you want to see healthy branches and full blossoms, you have to be a little bit more extreme. You have to go down to the roots and drench the soil with an insecticidal solution. The roots tap into the moisture of that drench, and they pull the insecticide up into the branches of the tree where those infernal insects ingest the poison and die. Amen. Last week, 
we observed in Paul's letter to the Galatians that from earliest times, the, the, the church of Jesus Christ has been assaulted by a sinister, subtle parasite, often too sneaky to see, a repugnant infestation of Jesus plus a distorted message that sucks away the lifeblood of the church. This distorted message is like crepe, myrtle, bark, scale. It'll latch right on to the living organism of the church, and it's subtle and it's sneaky. Even people like Peter and Barnabas were drawn in for a time. Left alone, it's going to prevent believers from bearing fruit. It's going to shackle them in slavery and break down their unity in Christ. And just like crepe myrtle bark scale, there's only one way to kill it. You've got to go down to the root. You've got to get down to the base of what the gospel is. And that's exactly what Paul is going to do in our passage today. Now, in my copy of the Bible, there is a closed quotation mark at the end of verse 14. I actually don't think that that's, that's supposed to be there. Uh, keep in mind, uh, the original writings, there, there was no quotation marks in, in the ancient world, in the Greek language. Uh, so translators had to decide where to put those quotation marks, and I think it actually should be at the end of the chapter. I think, in other words, what we're seeing in verses 15 through 21 is sort of the summary of Paul's speech to Peter in front of the Antioch church. In other words, I don't think, uh, okay, I already said that the, the, the heated conversation is uh, it's going to serve as kind of a transitional section in the letter, after which Paul's going to launch full speed into a doctrinal theological defense of his gospel in the next two chapters. Now, today's text is a little more dense than the kind of text that we usually, that, than, than we've seen in the last several weeks. So uh, I'm going to give you, there are three main divisions, and I'm going to give you three main points, but because of the nature of this text, I'm not going to do what I normally do, which is to kind of state that main idea and then show you from the text where I'm getting that idea. We're going to take a more inductive approach and examine the text together and then, kind of, after we've done that, pull that information together and see what the main takeaway is. So, with that being said, let's launch in. Uh, our first main division consists of verses 15 and 16. Notice Paul's first statement in verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What does that mean? Well, again, he's talking to Peter here. Both Paul and Peter were born into Jewish families and grew up observing the law. They were circumcised as infants. They kept the Sabbath. They observed these food, uh, food uh, purification laws. Uh, they went to the synagogue. They knew the law. They were within the boundaries of the Jewish community, and in this, in this way, they were not Gentile sinners. So, so Paul's not saying that he and Peter had never sinned. No, he's using that word sinner the same way that the Jews in, in that day might have used that word. If you were part of the nation of Israel and you'd been adhering to the demands of the law, then you were good. If you were not part of the nation of Israel, then you were outside. You were a sinner. And Paul's saying, we're, we're Jews. He's making a concession here. We're, we're, we're Jews. We're not Gentiles. Great. That's kind of a baseline. We all agree. But then notice verse 16. What's the first word? In my Bible, it's the word yet. So he's making a contrast with what he's just said in verse 15. Sure, we're Jews and we're not sinners, quote unquote. Yet, we know 
that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Both Peter and Paul knew that there was a deficiency in their identity as law-keeping citizens of the nation of Israel. That deficiency is that by the works of the law, a person can't be justified. They can only be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is so important. This is so central. This is everything. So much is wrapped up in these words, justify or justifying or justified or justification. Paul uses these terms eight times in the letter to the Galatians and twice that many times in the book of Romans. It's obviously central to his gospel message. Uh, John Calvin, in his own treatment of the topic of justification, said, this is the main hinge on which religion turns. If you get this wrong, you're going to get everything wrong. What does justify mean? Uh, Now, you might think that to justify someone is to make someone just. It kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? Uh, Or to add justice to a person or add righteousness to a person. To justify uh, does not mean that, though. That's not what justification means. To justify means to say that something or someone already is just or righteous. It's a declaration. It means to declare someone or something righteous. And I'm going to give you a few examples. You should write these in the margin of your Bible. Uh, Luke 7.29, for example. In Luke 7.29, you don't have to turn there, uh, Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist, and the people hear Jesus' words, and they like what they hear. And so we're told in that verse, in in Luke 7.29, that the people justified God. Now, ask yourself, what does that mean? Does that mean that the people added righteousness to God? That they made God more righteous? No, what does it mean? It means that they recognized that God is righteous and they just declared him to be what he already was, right? I'll give you another example, Luke 16, 15. This is sort of of different, but I think it'll round out the picture for us of what justification means. In Luke 16, 15... Uh, The Pharisees are being called out, the religious leaders of the day. And why were they being called out? It's because the Pharisees justified themselves. Now think about that. Does that mean that the Pharisees made themselves more righteous or just? No. What were they doing? They were declaring themselves to be just and righteous. In other words, they weren't doing that legitimately, but they were justifying themselves in that they were declaring themselves to already possess the righteousness that they said they had. So to justify does not mean to make righteous. Paul's not talking about the need to improve our lives. Now, it's true that the gospel transforms the life of a Christian, but that's not what he's talking about when he talks about justification. He's not talking about turning over a new leaf or getting started on the right path. He's not talking about moral improvement from the inside out. When he uses the term justify, he means to speak about the finding of the righteous judge. It's a legal term. It's a forensic term. Will I be found guilty or will I be found righteous? To be justified means to be found righteous by God himself. Dr. Thomas R. Schreiner, in his fantastic commentary on Galatians, he offers this definition of justification, and I can't improve on it, so I'll just quote him. He says, this verb refers to God's verdict of not guilty on the day of judgment. God's eschatological verdict, his end times verdict, has now been announced in advance for those who believe in Jesus Christ. 
In other words, one day we're all going to stand before the judgment seat and God is either going to justify us or he's going to condemn us. He's either going to declare us guilty or not guilty. And I can't think of anything more important than knowing what God's verdict is going to be. One day it won't matter what you all think of me. It will only matter what God thinks of me. One day it's not going to matter what the world thinks of me. It's only going to matter what God thinks of me. It won't matter what my wife or my kids think of me. It's only going to matter what God thinks of me. I must, I must make it my life's priority to know that I am justified before God. And that's such an important concept, and I don't want you to forget it. So I want you to remember this phrase, and you can repeat it after me. Here's what it, here's what it is. What is justify? Justify is declare righteous, not make righteous. Let's say that together. To justify is to declare righteous, not make righteous. Paul's concern should be our concern. Will God find me not guilty? Will God declare me to be righteous on the day of judgment? Is there any way that I can know now in advance? Well, read on. Here's what Paul knows and Peter knows according to verse 16. They can never be declared not guilty. They can never be justified. They can never be declared righteous by the works of the law. Here again is a phrase that we need to be careful to define. What is the works of the law? Uh, by the way, this phrase is the subject of loads of debate. Even in the small seminary that I attended, there was this whole library bookshelf devoted to this one question. What is the works of the law? Uh, you need to know that because some, you might be talking to somebody about the gospel and they might be operating on a different definition from the one that you're using. Uh, according to Schreiner, there are three main ways to understand this phrase. It could mean legalism, generally speaking, like I'm trying to perform and earn God's favor, sort of to bribe the Lord. Uh, it might mean the, the social boundary markers that distinguish Jews from Gentiles, such as circumcision or Sabbath keeping or food laws. Uh, this is very popular uh, among some, even Protestant theologians today, uh, that, that Paul is just talking about things like circumcision and not the rest of the law. Uh, or thirdly, and this is what I believe it means, it could, it could mean the demands of the law of Moses spelled out explicitly in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And what I would just encourage you to do, how do we determine what's the right understanding of this phrase? Go through the book of Galatians on your own and look at all the ways that he talks about the law. And you'll see, I think, that he's obviously speaking specifically about the law of Moses and not just part of it, not just the boundary markers, but all of the demands of the law of Moses. And, and that's, that's critically important. So you need to remember this too, right? What is justification? It's to declare righteous, not make righteous. Here's the works of the law. What's the works of the law? The works of the law means keeping the law of Moses. Say that with me. The works of the law means keeping the law of Moses. So you can't be, in other words, let's go back to verse 16 and let's read it with those kind of updated meanings. We know, Paul says, that a person is not declared righteous by God by keeping the law of Moses. Well, why not? Well, because the law required perfect obedience. You've already heard from Exodus chapter 24. Uh, Brianna read how the, the covenant was ratified uh, by throwing blood onto the people. Can you imagine? Uh, and they said, what did they say? Twice. All that the Lord has spoken, we will what? We will do it. 
all that the Lord has spoken, we will obey. Uh, Exodus 19 says essentially the same thing. Uh, the Old Testament is clear. Nothing short of perfect obedience to the law is going to be enough. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 16 through 18. If you obey the commandment of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are take, entering to take possession of it. But... If your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today, you shall surely perish. So think about that. God is just and righteous. He sees everything that you do. He knows everything that you think. He hears everything that you say. And when he looks at your life, what do you think that he sees? Have you really had no other gods before him? Have you honored your father and your mother perfectly? Have you avoided greed and envy and covetousness? You never desired somebody else's possessions or their spouse or their position? You might be able to convince yourself, but God is a more righteous judge than you are. L listen to Proverbs 16 too. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Or here's Proverbs 21 verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. See, Paul says to Peter, you and I are Jews from birth. We're not Gentile sinners, but come on. You know that nobody is going to be justified. Nobody's going to be declared not guilty by God in the last day on the basis of keeping the law of Moses because none of us have kept the law of Moses perfectly. It's impossible. And so he says at the end of verse 16, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, but because by keeping the law of Moses, no one is going to be justified. No one's going to be cleared. No one's going to be declared not guilty. So here's the takeaway from verses 15 and 16. Even good people need to abandon their goodness and trust in Christ alone. Even good people need to abandon their goodness and trust in Christ alone. Friend, do not be fooled by the Photoshop and the wrinkle creams and the vitamins and the medical technology. You are going to die one day. And all your priorities pale in comparison with this great question. When I die and when I stand alone in the dock before God's bench and the righteous judge lays bare everything I've ever done and said and thought... At that moment, will he pronounce me guilty or not guilty? Who cares whether you ended up visiting all those bucket list destinations, right? Who cares whether you ever got married or had kids or grandkids? Who cares whether you ever made the six figures or have a million dollars in the bank? Who cares whether you kept the wrinkles at bay for another few years or... Listen, on that day, when, in, when eternity stretches out before you, None of those priorities is going to mean anything. And what Paul is reminding Peter is that when that day comes, no one is going to be able to say, hey, I, I kept the law of Moses. That's a standard far higher than any of us can reach. And by the way, if we can't keep the law of Moses, do you really think that all the other lame defenses are going to be any more effective? Like you think that you, because you paid your taxes or because you give a little bit of extra tip at Christmas time or because you mow your lawn or you return the cart to the cart return, 
that you're going to be justified before the throne of God. No, even good people, even people who do good things, need to lay aside their goodness and trust in Christ alone. That's takeaway number one. Now let's look at the next cluster of verses. In verse 17 and 18, Paul acknowledges and deals with an objection that the circumcision party was lodging against his message of the gospel. That objection goes something like this. If you stop seeking justification by fulfilling the demands of the law of Moses, then what you're doing is you're putting yourself in a place that's no different from all those Gentiles out there. You're outside the law and you're declaring yourself to be a sinner. And if you're saying that you're a sinner and that in Christ God justifies sinners, then isn't Christ made a servant of sin? Isn't that implicating Christ in your wickedness? In other words, is it really right, is it righteous for God to declare lawbreakers righteous? Now, this is a very important argument because God is righteous. And for him to declare sinners righteous without basis would be to, to mock justice and perpetrate a legal fiction. I mean, God himself, in Deuteronomy 16, he commands the people, when you set judges up in, in, in charge of the people, you need to make sure those judges judge without partiality, that they don't uh, acquit the guilty. In Proverbs 17, 15, we're told, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to God himself. So to say that God justifies the wicked would be to say that God is doing something that he himself hates and abominates. So Paul, your message can't be true. And Paul says, wait a second, not so fast. I'm not the one who's implicating Christ in wickedness, Peter. Uh, the demands of the law of Moses have been torn down in Christ. I'm not going to rebuild them again. In fact, if I were to build up what I just tore down, I would be the one breaking the law. So Paul's opponents were saying, Paul, you break God's law and you offend God's justice and righteousness when you tell me that a sinner can be justified in Christ. And Paul says, I'm not the one who's breaking the law. You are the one who's breaking the law. Here's takeaway number two from verses 17 through 18. The real lawbreakers are the law leaners. The real lawbreakers are the law leaners. Now, he's going to develop this idea later on, but for now, here's essentially what he's saying. If you try to go back and keep relying on the law of Moses, then you're the one who's using the law in a way that it was never intended to be used. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to lean on the law for your justification, then you're actually, you are the one who's actually transgressing the law's original intent. You're the one who's a lawbreaker. Now, here's what this means. This means that anyone who teaches you that God does most of the work and you do part of the work, is breaking God's law and transgressing the true purpose of the law. You'll see why in a moment, but let me just give you a few, a few examples. Here's, I'm going to quote this. The 30th canon of the 6th session of the Council of Trent of the Roman Catholic Church. And keep in mind, in 500 years, this has never been recanted or revoked. Quote, If anyone says... That after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is forgiven and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in this way, that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, 
let him be anathema. In other words, you can be justified, but don't you dare think that God's verdict is totally and completely not guilty. God's going to take you most of the way there, but you've got to take yourself part of the way there. Or listen to this statement from an official website of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Quote, God's ultimate goal is to help all his children return to live with him in the celestial kingdom. Yet it is our choices here and now that will shape where we spend eternity. We must believe in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, be baptized in his name, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We also need to keep the commandments throughout the rest of our lives and repent when we fall short. God does most of the work, but you do a little bit of the work. Now, here's another statement. This one's from the official website of the Jehovah's Witnesses. The person who does what God wants lives forever. More is required than simply believing in Jesus. We must exercise faith in him, choosing to live in harmony with his teachings and with the will of his Father. God does most of the work. You do a little bit of the work. Now, I don't mean to conflate all these different religions. There are huge, huge, huge gaps between the, the theology of the Roman Catholic Church and the theology of the LDS Church and the Jehovah's Witnesses. But what they all apparently share in common is this idea that God does most of the work, you do part of the work. And what Paul is saying is that when you use the law like that, you are actually the one that is breaking the law. You are the transgressor. The real lawbreakers are the law leaners, the ones who like Jesus, but when, when push comes to shove, they kind of lean back on their own performance and their ability to keep the law and be different from those other people over there. So if you're leaning in any way on the works of the law, if you're using the law for that which it was never intended in the first place, instead of being found not guilty, you will be found guilty. So friend, search your heart. Are you rebuilding what was torn down? Are you leaning on your ability to keep the commands of God? Or have you placed yourself complete, completely into Christ? And by the way, the easiest way to tell if you're doing this, if there's any part of your heart that hasn't given into the gospel and is still leaning on the works of the law, the easiest way to tell is when you compare yourself to other people, right? This is what Peter and his friends were doing hey, I'm, I'm glad that those people are believing in Jesus, but I'm going to go sit over here. I, I don't want to be one of them, right? Takeaway number one, even good people need to abandon their goodness and trust in Christ alone. Takeaway number two, the real lawbreakers are the law leaners. Takeaway number three is found in verses 19 and 20. Now, it's in these two verses that Paul is going to provide the grounds upon which his assertion is built that he's using the law rightly and his opponents are the real transgressors. There's a very simple reason why Paul is able to seek justification outside the law. It's because, as he states in verse 19, through the law, I died to the law. Uh, this is very important because as evangelical Christians, we tend to look at the Old Testament and we see a command in the Old Testament and we think, that doesn't apply to me. At least that's my tendency. Maybe yours as well. Uh, but is that Paul's assertion here or anywhere else in the New Testament? No, I don't think it is. So you have to understand what the law really is. It's sort of a restatement. It's a republication, if you will, of the very command that God gave to Adam and, and, 
in, in the Garden of Eden. You obey and you'll live. You disobey and you're going to die. And if you read through the first several chapters of the letter to the Romans, you'll see every human being knows deep down inside that he or she is obligated to God in this way. There are those who are, uh, they recognize the goodness of the law and they, they put themselves under the law, but they are not keeping the law. And then there are those who ignore the law, but they're not able to justify themselves on the basis of the law either. But everybody is accountable to God. And Paul says, the same is true of you and me, Peter, but through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. So how do I escape the law's demands? The only way to escape is by death. You see, the law applies to all human beings, but I have already been judged by the law, and I have been executed on the basis of its sentence of death, then the demands of the law have been exhausted in my case, and God in his justice, he's not going to kill me again because he's already killed me. You say, wait a second, I'm still alive. How is this possible? How is it that I could have died to the law? I'm not dead. Here's how. Look at the end of verse 19. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, it's going to take the whole rest of the letter to unpack what this means. But here's what he's saying. I am in Christ. I am united to Christ. I have been made one with Christ. He is my covenant representative so that when Christ died in accordance with the law, taking upon himself the curse and the punishment of sin, then I died too. I am crucified with Christ. I'm united with him so that when Christ walked out of the empty tomb, I myself also was raised to a new life to God. So that the life I'm living now is Christ's life. It's not my life. Jake is already dead. By the way, this is what we celebrate when we celebrate a baptism, right? I'm being baptized. Jake has died. I want to show you that. I want to testify to that publicly. I am dead in Christ. And I've been raised to live my life to God in Christ. See, what's left is what's new in Christ and alive to the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not my life anymore. It's his. Here's takeaway number three. The law can't touch you if you're dead. The law can't touch you if you're dead. You've died with Christ, and you've been raised, and now you're his, and through that cross death, you died to the law, and its accusations and demands have no hold over you any longer. Now, this is a monumental truth, and it's like the hub of, of a huge wheel, and all the different gospel doctrines are going to kind of radiate out from it. I've been judged in Christ. I've been made alive in Christ. I've been justified in Christ. I've been declared righteous in Christ. The verdict of God has been announced in advance, not guilty. And when I allow that reality to sink in, when I allow that reality that I'm no longer mine but his because he gave himself for me, then the only reasonable thing for me to do is to give myself to him because I'm already his. Here's what I'm saying. If you are in Christ this morning, if you have believed in him, like Paul, like Peter, then you are justified. You have been declared righteous. You cannot be condemned. Not a shred of the law can accuse you in the courtroom of heaven because every judgment against you has already been handed down into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what you need to do. Rejoice. Rejoice. No condemnation now I dread. I am my Lord's and he is.
is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Rejoice. God justifies the ungodly. He's declared the guilty righteous, and his righteousness and his justice and his goodness is on display in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Takeaway number one, even good people need to abandon their goodness and put their trust in, in Christ alone. Takeaway number two, the real lawbreakers are the law leaners. Takeaway number three, the law can't touch you if you're dead. But for those of you, who are still trying to be found righteous on the basis of your own works. Paul has one final word of warning in verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if we try to combine the work of Christ with my law-keeping, with my obedience to the law of Moses, then what we're doing is we are nullifying the grace of God and Christ's death is of no benefit to us. Friends, it is all or nothing. You have to come to him with absolutely empty hands. You cannot bring any works with you. It has to be in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. The works of the law have absolutely no power to save. In fact, if you rely on them even a little bit, they are the thing that is in your way. And if we go back even a little bit, then what's left to us is that word of condemnation, and the grace is gone. So here's what Peter's saying, to, or, or here's what Paul is saying to Peter. Peter, remember, that gallows standing outside your prison cell, it's been crushed to splinters. Why would you rebuild it? Don't rebuild your own gallows. Don't weld back together the prison bars from which you've just been freed. Don't replant that noxious weed that you just tore out of the ground. You have been freed from the demands of the law. You've been rescued from its prison. You've been healed from its poison. Don't go back. Don't rebuild what Christ tore down at the cross. Don't live your life trying to earn God's love with your performance and forgetting the righteousness of Christ, which is yours in him by faith. No, let's trust in Christ and be justified, not by the works of the law but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. Would you pray with me now? Father, what a, a glorious truth, but a truth that we easily and often forget. A truth that many people find too hard to believe. And yet you've promised in your word that 
when your word is proclaimed, it doesn't return to you empty. You accomplish what you've sent it to do. And so I'm asking, Lord, that you would do what you want with your word in each of our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that you would bring about the new birth and cause the dead to rise and see that only in Christ alone can they be justified. And for the rest of us, Father, I pray that you would remind us of who we are in him, that you would expose the areas of our heart that are relying on the works of the law, and that you would remind us of our righteousness in Christ so that we can live our lives out of worship and gratitude to you by the power of your spirit and not through obligation or despair or desire to earn your fatherly love. Father, we pray that you would cause your word to just go deep into our hearts and stay there and grow and change who we are. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.